turn back then to the chapter that we read, the book of Genesis, chapter 28. And we can read again at uh, verses 16 and 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. The story that we have here in chapter 28, or at least this part of it, Jacob's dream, is probably one of the best known dreams uh, throughout literature, Jacob's Ladder. And we'll come to look at the dream itself uh, in a little while and the significance of the dream. But first of all, I want to look at the situation that has brought Jacob to this particular place. And this is why we read uh, the previous chapter and the parts uh, of it, and we see uh, what kind of character Jacob was and his relation with his brother Esau. And you see also pointed out uh, that it is because of uh, Esau that Jacob finds himself in the situation that he's in. Well, indirectly. It's really his own fault, if we can put it that way. But we'll look at that in more detail in a moment or two. And you remember then that uh, when Jacob and Esau had been born, something that we tend to forget, that they were actually twins. Uh, not identical twins but they were twins and when they're born as you'll see in chapter 25 in verse 23 uh, when uh, the struggle is going on in Rebecca's womb then she asks the Lord what exactly is happening and she's told that there are two nations in her womb and she's told, uh, the Lord said to her in chapter 25 and verse 23, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. And that was the prophecy and the, the promise that God had made to Rebekah when she had bore this pair of twins. And you remember, of course, that in the birth of Esau that comes out first, but Jacob is holding on to his heel uh, as he is born. And you can read that in the stories beforehand. And then you remember after that, of course, that we see how Jacob uh, deceives Esau into, first of all, his birthright, giving away his birthright. You remember for uh, the mess of pottage as it's put or for, uh, for the stew. And then he deceives Esau again over the blessing that Isaac, his father, uh, was to give him. And you remember that that was when Isaac had become old and sent Esau out to kill venison and to make a stew so that he would bless him. <coughs> 
And you remember how Rebecca overheard that, and then she dresses up Jacob in the skins, uh, a skin of a goat uh, that she was then going to cook as the savoury meat. And Isaac is deceived into thinking that this is actually Esau, and he gives uh, the blessing to Jacob that he was planning to give to Esau. And you see that in the previous chapter. Uh, and if you uh, look back in chapter 27, at verse 27, you see that Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now that is quite a substantial blessing that Isaac gives uh, mistakenly to Jacob thinking that it is Esau and you remember the rest of the story how Esau then comes of course discovered that Isaac has been uh, deceived and that the blessing that Esau is given from verse 39 onwards is a blessing that is completely inferior to what has been given to Jacob and you're told in verse 40 there that Esau is uh, told by your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. So Esau had good reason to hate his brother. Or perhaps hate is maybe too strong a word, but certainly uh, to have, uh, shall we say, nasty feelings towards his brother. He's lost his birthright, he's lost the blessing. <coughs> <coughs> and then comes the passage that we read where he determines that he will in fact once Isaac dies that he will kill Jacob but mothers like mothers are are very protective of their favourite sons and there indeed is a lesson for us we see clearly that Esau is Isaac's favourite and that Jacob is Rebekah's favourite. And it's a lesson to us that as parents we should not have favourites among our children. I suppose it's very difficult uh, not to have favourites in a sense. There's always one who seems to be closer to one parent than the other. Uh, and if you're the one in the middle, you're usually in trouble, etc. and so on. Well, you, you know what happens in these situations. But here we see uh, the typical situation of a dysfunctional family in a way because of favouritism. And that's something that we see in various places in Scripture. But Rebecca is very protective of Jacob. And it seems in a way that Jacob here is very much a mummy's boy. If you followed the story of Jacob up till now, what you see of him is that he appears to be constantly with his mother. While as Esau is much more outside and an outside guy, a typical sort of uh, male figure, whereas Jacob seems in a sense almost to be tied to his mother's apron strings. But the result of this is, of course, that Jacob is then sent away. 
and you notice the excuse that is given in verse 46 of chapter 27 Rebekah said to Isaac I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman or the daughters of the children of Heth if you're using the uh, authorized version if Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these one of the women of the land what good will my life be to me now it would seem uh, that it wasn't just because these were Canaanite women and probably uh, idol worshippers but that there was more to it than that it seems that Esau had brought uh, one, two, we're not told exactly how many wives he had at this stage uh, there's some debate about that but it seems that they were making Rebecca's life a misery in many ways and again, of course, there are lessons for us in that as well. I'm not going to go into daughters-in-law and mothers-in-law and things. We'd get into all kinds of trouble if we went, if we went down that road. But here we see, of course, that this is used as an excuse that Jacob would be then be blessed by Isaac. And as you notice, it's obviously Rebecca who puts this suggestion in Isaac's mind and directed him, Isaac directs him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. Arise and go. How different by comparison to how Isaac had got his wife. You remember when Isaac uh, had married Rebekah, it was Rebekah who came to Isaac that Abraham had sent his servant and Rebekah had consented to come without ever having seen Isaac. So here Jacob is sent out in a completely different way. He has to go and find a wife for himself. But the suggestion is that he find it from among his relatives. Take us your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So in effect he would be taking, of course, someone who was closely related to him. If you notice that, Laban is his uncle, and therefore any daughters of Laban would be his cousins, close relatives. But that seems to be quite acceptable uh, in this particular situation here. And he is sent with, Abraham, with Isaac's blessing again from verse 3 onwards. God Almighty bless you, make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you, to your offspring, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. And you see the result of this with Esau. Esau realizes somehow that his wives have upset his parents and then he goes and takes closer relatives, the wives, daughters of Ishmael, hoping that that would please his father and his mother and in a way that he might get back into favor again. Again, there's plenty we could say about that. Uh, trying to please your parents and the wife or the husband that you choose is a dangerous occupation at the best of times. Uh, and uh, does Esau make a mistake here? Again, scripture doesn't really open it up to us. But it seems that uh, not being happy with just the Canaanite woman that he had, that he's got another one here. And... Uh, 
having three wives I cannot think of anything worse than having three wives it's bad enough with one and you can draw your own conclusions of course from that as, as you uh, think of these relationships that are almost like dysfunctional relationships within this family but that's the situation then as Jacob leaves Bathsheba it's amazing to think that Jacob at this point is 77 years old that's something that we don't often realize 77 years old he's been tied to his mother's apron strings for 77 years and during that time it seems the only occupation he had was looking after sheep not that there's anything wrong with looking after sheep that's perfectly acceptable of course and we see that later on that that becomes a blessing to him when he is in fact with labor in many different ways but he is forced in a sense forced to leave because of his own behavior now remember that the name Jacob means deceiver supplanter and it's because of the deceit that he has rendered on Esau particularly that he is forced to leave and imagine the picture you have here of this 77 year old man who has never left home before never been away from his mother's side or his father's side never been on his own before and here he is having to travel by himself to go to his uncle to look for a wife we're told later in chapter 32 and verse 10 Jacob says that all he had with him was his staff nothing else no one else accompanied him and you contrast that to how Rebecca had been brought back when Isaac sent for her that she had been brought back with a retinue of servants and camels etc here is Jacob on foot by himself you might think that 77 is quite old to be undertaking a journey like this and from one point of view it is nowadays if we were to think if I was to think I'm not 77 yet but I'm not far off it if I was to think of taking a journey like this he walks 48 miles in the first day uh, to walk that kind of distance and it was I think around about 400 miles to go to, to Aaron uh, that sort of journey would seem daunting if not horrific that you would have to undertake it by yourself he doesn't have a camel he doesn't have a mule he doesn't have anything and as you see when he comes to a certain place and stayed there that night because the son of the set he doesn't even have a bedroll a typical sort of carpet thing that they would unfold and set out to lie down on he has <coughs> nothing with him at all what does he do he takes one of the stones of the place puts it under his head and lies down to sleep I suppose at this stage that he was pretty tired <clears throat> we mustn't think of Jacob as an old man as we would think of 77 in our uh, 
sort of chronology here. The equivalent, uh, if you look and see later how old Jacob is when he dies, he's swelled to a nearly 150 by the time he dies or older. I can't remember exactly how old he was when he died. I think it was 147, but somewhere around there. But this is, think of him as halfway through his life. In other words, he might well, you might well see him here as in the prime of his life. <coughs> Never been married before. Maybe that's why he's uh, so fit uh, at this stage. Who knows? Are used to looking after sheep, etc., and so on. Uh, th- there are various things that we could conjecture. But nevertheless, the picture of loneliness and desolation that we get here when he comes to this particular place. Now, it doesn't seem that he's aware that there is a city nearby. Maybe he's not familiar with the road. (coughs) He's never traveled this way before, as far as we know. But instead of seeking shelter in the city, perhaps he doesn't even know the city's there, he simply lies down on the ground. And he takes one of the stones and puts it under his head to sleep. I don't know if you've ever slept with a stone under your head. It doesn't sound exactly very comfortable. And you would have thought that Jacob would have found something more comfortable than a stone. But then again, it seems that maybe he was uh, quite used to sleeping on the ground. Even though they had tents, etc., he may well have just slept on the ground and been quite used to it. Perhaps looking after his sheep before, some commentators suggest that he had spent nights out before in the open air. doesn't really matter. But nevertheless, in the picture of loneliness... As he sleeps, he dreams a dream. Now, this is quite an amazing dream. He dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Now, the word translated as ladder is badly translated. The better translation would be stairway rather than ladder. We tend to think of a ladder with rungs in it, that the angels are climbing up and climbing down on the other side. And if you think of just one ladder, they would get in each other's way all the time. That's not the picture that we should have of it at all. It is like a stairway. (coughs) And I suppose as soon as we say stairway to heaven, it brings certain things to our mind. I'm not so sure among the age group here, but uh, many of you will be familiar, or some of you might be familiar, with a very famous song called Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. Something about, you know, some, some people it does. Uh, and yet, if you, if you look at the lyrics of, of that word, uh, song, which are very, very interesting, there's a, there's a lyric at the end of it that says this. It says, in the final verse, it says, If you listen very hard, the truth will come to you at last. If you listen very hard, the truth will come to you at last. Now, I'm not going to go into the interpretation of the the song and the lyrics of Stairway to Heaven because there's a great debate about what it exactly means. But that applies to what is happening here. And you see that Jacob is listening in his dream. 
He has no choice in a dream except to listen. You can't close your ears in a dream and decide not to hear. But the dream that he has given, probably one of the best known biblical dreams in history, is quite a significant dream. The angels of God ascending and descending on this stairway. What exactly does that mean? Is this just a dream? Or is it more in the sense of a vision that he is given to see what actually is going on between heaven and earth? How do we interpret? Well, again, we go back to our golden rule. We interpret scripture with scripture. Is there anywhere else in scripture where this is referred to? We can look, of course, at uh, the book of Job, and we see the angels in chapter 1, that the angels are coming together, uh, as if it were for an audience with God, and then as, as if it were being sent out on their respective tasks. And you see the importance of the, the order of the words, the angels of God ascending and descending. Those who are ascending have completed the work that they have been given to do. And those who are descending are coming to carry out the work that they have been given to do. Is there anything else that we can take from scripture that helps us to interpret this? Well, yes, there is. If you go to the Gospel of John and chapter 1, again you don't need to turn to it, I'll read it to you. Jesus' conversation with Nathaniel, later Bartholomew, in chapter 1. What does Jesus say to him? Jesus answered him in verse 50, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? Of course, it is Jesus himself. And therefore, we have to see, like so many commentators do, everyone takes into account that the interpretation of the stairway is that it shows us how Jesus Christ himself, the Son of Man, opens the stairway to heaven for us. Now, that seems fairly straightforward. We would have no problem whatsoever with that, were it not that there are so many other different interpretations of what this actually means. If you go to the Jewish, uh, what's called the Jewish Midrash, that is the Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament scriptures, you will find that the Jews interpret the stairway in a completely different way. They see it as four separate stages in which the children of Israel were taken into captivity, etc., the restoration under Nehemiah, and they see the stages of Jewish history in the stairway. Now, there's no scriptural basis for that whatsoever, but be aware of it, that there are other interpretations of what this actually means. But again, if we tie together what we are told about angels 
go to Hebrews chapter 1 and the last verses and what do you see that he, angels are ministering spirits who are they ministering to the people of God they are ministering spirits that are sent out to minister to us I suppose at this stage people would say well you know how many of us have seen an angel and how many of us have uh, been aware of angels round about us well I would have to say yes I have been aware once of an angel uh, it was only afterwards that I realised that it probably was an angel I'm sure many of you will be aware in my father's uh, story as well in his life story that uh, a dream, a vision he was given by an angel before the second world war it's there as well which you can read upon yourself and there are many other things that we see every day uh, very often in the press and in various other places of people being mysteriously helped and saved by angels and not all of them are believers sometimes their experience is what leads them to faith now I'm not going to go into angelology if we were going to go into a study of angels we would be here all night because there are so many things that we can see about angels in scripture but we're told very very clearly in scripture and the times that we see angels in scripture we see that they are always there to carry out God's instructions and usually there to help God's people and sometimes as in the case of Manoah they don't realize it's an angel until the angel ascends on the smoke of the sacrifice and we're told in the last chapter of Hebrews and we're told there be not forgetful to, to entertain strangers why? because thereby some have entertained angels unawares unawares for all you know <coughs> when you've invited a stranger into your home at some time or shown some kind of kindness you may well have been entertaining an angel <coughs> and many people will say to that with a load of nonsense but that is what scripture tells us and scripture is very clear that the angels are ministering spirit there is a world round about us a spiritual world of angels and demons that we are unaware of <coughs> go to the book of Daniel and see how at the end in the visions of Daniel how Daniel is told by the angel who is speaking to him how he's told that the angels are struggling with the demons at times for the control of what is going on in this world and there are others of course and again I'm not going to go into this in detail who will argue that each one of us has his own guardian angel that Jesus says that later on again that's open to interpretation but the, the dream that Jacob sees so clearly here is the angels of God ascending and descending now really that's not the important thing at all I've spent far too long on that that's not really what matters what matters is what he sees at the top of the ladder or the top of the stairway behold the Lord stood above it now who is this? 
This is Jehovah. This is the Lord God. God, in a sense, God the Father. Although most commentators maintain that here that this is the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Because he identifies himself in what he says. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. And notice how strange that is. Abraham is not Jacob's father. He's his grandfather. Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. But it's in a sense that it is through the covenant with Abraham that this blessing is now coming. And what follows is a reiteration of the covenant blessing that had been given to Abraham. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now that is almost exactly the same covenant blessing as God had given to Abraham. And you notice it's not a new covenant, it's a reiteration of the covenant that is going to come through this family. Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. And how Jacob must have wondered about what is said there. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. When he is 77 years old and not yet married. How is that going to be possible? Surely he would have thought back to Abraham and Sarah. How marvellous the birth of Isaac had been. And he will have thought back as well to the fact that the child Ishmael with Hagar had been rejected. And in the same way that he can see and perceive here that he is in a sense the chosen, the elect of God, and Esau is not. And you remember that later on it will say in scripture that Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. But imagining wakening from that dream, as we see in verse 16, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I wonder how you would have felt if you were out there in the middle of the Mojoch by yourself on a cold and frosty evening, and you had had this vision, this dream of the stairway to heaven, and God himself speaking to you in the covenant terms, the covenant promises, renewing this covenant. How would you have reacted to that experience? You notice (coughs) that his first reaction is one of fear. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? How awesome is this place? Isn't that very often the experience of the Lord's people 
when like Jacob they are going through very difficult circumstances where they seem to feel entirely on their own they don't know which way to turn they have an idea uh, of being sent somewhere but yet confusion perhaps loneliness perhaps distress all these various things that Jacob is feeling here and yet in the midst of that experience comes this wonderful vision and dream that he is given and the covenant blessing with it and isn't that very often the experience of the Lord's people when you're down when you're in a lonely place it is then very often that God meets with you and reinforces the covenant blessing that he has given to you it is not the covenant blessing as it is with Abraham but it is the new covenant the covenant of grace that is given through the blood of Jesus Christ and it is Jesus who is the stairway to heaven there is no other way in which we can approach God the Father God the Holy Spirit except through God the Son and through the blood that was shed at Calvary no wonder Jacob was afraid and no wonder perhaps you and I would be afraid with an experience like this as well but there's a difference between Jacob's experience and yours there's no indication for us before this that Jacob was a believer no indication at all in anything of the history of Jacob up till now and there are more chapters about Jacob in scripture than on any of the patriarchs in Genesis but up until now there's no indication that Jacob he knew of God but that he really believed in the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and there are many who think that this is Jacob's conversion experience that it is here he is converted at the age of 77 years now, I'm not sure I totally agree with that I, I find it quite a convincing argument to suggest that this is the first time that Jacob that we see Jacob really becoming aware of his relationship with God but nevertheless you notice that what does that produce it doesn't produce the joy that it should produce it produces fear and perhaps many people will relate to that that the first step in their own in their own conversion experience was a stage of fear when they became aware of their own sins and they became aware of the fact that unless they found forgiveness with God that they were doomed to spend eternity separate from God we don't see that Jacob goes through perhaps that kind of experience but he certainly goes through some experience here surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it wouldn't you also say that surely the Lord is everywhere that you don't need to be in a special place to meet with God God's omnipresence is everywhere you can meet with him anywhere at any time 
and at any age notice 77 years old if this is when Jacob is converted then <coughs> at any particular age how awesome is this place now he's using awesome there not in its modern sense but in the sense of producing awe that is producing a mixture of fear and reverence that's the original meaning of the word from which we got awful which was exactly the opposite a lack of reverence this is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven <coughs> why did he see it as the gate because of the stairway because of the stairway to heaven and it's probably here that he realizes for the first time the closeness of his relationship with the eternal triune God what does he do early in the morning he takes the stone and sets it up for a pillar and he pours oil on it a lot of people have questioned where did he get the oil from uh, this would of course be olive oil uh, that would be used as an oil of consecration that is making the place sacred holy uh, and the simple answer is that he probably went into the city of Luz or close to Luz in order to get that oil but he gives a different name to the place he calls it Beth El Beth is the Hebrew word for a house and El is God and it literally means the house of God and this is a place where he will come again 20 years later when he is coming back from Laban with his wives and his children and all his flocks and his herds to meet Esau this is where he will again have another vision of God you see this is not the only time that uh, he has a vision of angels if you read on in chapter uh, I think it's 32 isn't it uh, when we come to it you will see that uh, he, there's a very interesting uh, I think it's 32 there's a very interesting statement at the beginning of the chapter 32 and verse 1 Jacob went in his way and the angels of God met him and when Jacob saw them he said this is God's camp so he called the name of the place Manaheim and later in that chapter is of course the meeting at Peniel where he wrestles with the angel and you remember that he receives the blessing there as well I will not let you go unless, me, unless you bless me but this is 20 years in the future and you notice that there's a totally different reaction he's not no longer frightened by those meetings but here he is what is the result of, his, of that he makes a vow verse 20 Jacob made a vow saying if God be with me now watch how you understand that this is not a conditional if he's not laying down a condition on God what the if means here it would be better translated as because because God is with me and because God will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace then the Lord will be my God and this stone shall be God's house and of all that you give me 
I will give a full tenth to you. Now he's again, the tenth of course, is uh, he's simply reusing what Abraham had given to Melchizedek. You remember that Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of all the spoils. So it is a response, it's not a condition that he's setting on, on God here. Do you see that all he, all he asks for? Bread to eat and clothing to wear. That's all. The basic necessities of life. And he would appear to be satisfied with that. Because God will be with me and keep me in the way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my Father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. We turn that into a complicated agreement sometimes. But you notice how simple it is. As long as we have bread to eat and clothing to wear, then God, the Lord, the covenant God, will be my God. How many times do you and I try and put conditions on God? Particularly in our prayers, when we're praying about something. We say we very often so many people say if you do this if if then and God doesn't work that way you see that particularly in the Roman Catholic faith mm -hmm. there are so many times where people make vows of conditions that if you grant this and this benefit such and such a thing I will do. And you see that particularly in this in the prayers to the Virgin and the prayers to the saints. Don't fall into that trap. You cannot set conditions on God. God is not a God who responds to if you do this then I will do this. Quite the opposite. God is a God of grace who provides for you without you asking. All of us here, as far as I can see, have bread to eat and clothing to wear. What else do you need? What else do you need? And yet, of course, nowadays we make such a fuss about the material blessings that we look for in this life. But what really matters is the basic necessities. And one of the basic necessities is our relationship with God. That's the most important thing again. What does he do? He sets up a stone for a memorial. Again, this was a common Old Testament thing. You see this in various places. Remember Samuel setting up a stone and calling it Ebenezer. We used to hear that so often in our prayers, particularly in Gaelic prayers, they would say, Togalir Nebenezer Kahwa. And I used to think about that and think, what on earth does that mean? Because the only Ebenezer I was familiar with then was Ebenezer Scrooge in a Christmas carol. And it didn't make any sense to me at all. But eventually, of course, one learns what these things mean. And it was a custom in the Old Testament times, particularly in the times of the patriarchs, to mark particular places and occasions by raising a pillar, raising a stone. 
Jewish mythology or to the Jewish Kabbalah actually says that Jacob's pillar was four stones which were magically fused into one and raised as a pillar without him doing anything. Again, of course, that is the interpretation of the rabbis. There's no scriptural basis for that at all. And so this is Jacob's encounter with God. If it is his conversion experience, then you notice that it is something that changes his life considerably. From now on, you see, as you follow Jacob's story, that his trust is implicitly in the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, who will become the God of Jacob his spiritual necessity that he was probably unaware of up until now has now been satisfied and he can see even through if he interpreted the stairway he can see the reconciliation between God and man Jacob saw the Messiah the promised Messiah that was to come he understood that that would be the case and it is through the descendancy of Jacob that is what God says to him in verse 14 in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed follow through follow the birth line of Judah and it is from the tribe of Judah of course that the Lord Jesus comes Never mind all the other, the twelve tribes of Israel. And of course, I'm sure you're familiar again with how Jacob's name is changed to Israel later on at Peniel. Quite amazing, isn't it? How Jacob's change of heart revolves round a dream. But he's not unusual in that. I'm sure all of you are familiar with stories of people who have been converted through things that they have seen in dreams. It's not something that happens to everyone. God uses many different ways to bring people to a knowledge of himself. But a dream is quite a common one. The prophet and the prophets tell us, I think it's Zechariah, it says, your young men shall dream dreams and your old men shall see visions and so on. What was the difference in those times, of course? Well, Jacob had no Bible. He had no scripture. He had no Old Testament. There was nothing written down. But you and I have everything written down. We have the full revelation given to us in the books of the Old and the New Testament. We can see how the two fit together to make one story from the beginning of time through to eternity. And we can see where the Lord Jesus Christ comes as the promised Messiah in the middle of the story. And we can see and understand how that fits in with the Old Testament pattern, with all that was shown through the Old Testament, through the Mosaic system, the sacrifices, etc., and how it fits into the New Testament pattern. And there you can see just how important Jacob is in that particular story. In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be.
be blessed. If you're a believer this evening in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been blessed through Jacob, through the offspring of Jacob. And we should never lose sight of that. And we should never lose sight of the second part of the covenant. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, the land of promise. And again, time doesn't permit me to go into all the symbolism of the land of promise. But you remember, of course, that it was the land of promise that brings the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, from Egypt through to the promised land, through the wilderness. You and I are going through the wilderness at this particular time. None of us know how long our journey through the wilderness will be. But nevertheless, the promises that Scripture gives us all the time is that if we believe, if we are in the covenant of grace through Jesus Christ, that we will be brought through the wilderness to the promised land, to heaven itself. And these are wonderful things for us to meditate on and to hearten us as we struggle on from day to day, as it heartened Jacob to continue his journey in what he had to do. So I hope that the example of Jacob and Bethel and the stairway to heaven will be something that again encourages us as we look at our daily walk. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this evening. We thank you that we can see how all these things fit together and that you have revealed them to us, uh, not through dreams or visions or anything else, but through your word that is now written down, that we can have a full knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and the plan of salvation that is written so clearly through the pages of Scripture. We thank you for the covenant of grace which has replaced the Old Testament covenant and that it is a covenant sealed with blood, with the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bless us this evening as we meditate on these things. Guide us now as we uh, conclude our worship. Take us home in safety and pardon our sins through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.